Good morning, Carpenters Away. It is so great to see people spread out in this room. We are, man, it's been so empty. We've, we've actually been doing this for, I think this is our fourth week, but the first week was just our Bible study leaders, and the second week was two Bible studies, and now we're doing four or five a week. And for those of you who are at home and can't see, we've got them spread out in different locations throughout the worship center. Um, we are under 
recommend, recommended strict distancing guidelines, so it's just wonderful. We're going to have communion in a few moments at, or at the end of the message, and so they all have their communion snack packs. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand and Brad will bring you one or whatever. But uh, at home, we want you to grab some bread and grab some juice of some sort or whatever you can find and, and uh, prepare to have communion with us at the end of our message. But man, we're glad that you're with us this morning, and our time in the Word is going to be is going to be so good. Um, it's, a, it's a great day at Carpenter's Way. Not only is it beautiful outside, but this morning we are going to be celebrating our gra- graduates with our annual re- uh, a senior uh, retirement uh, second wind program. I, I can't get the name right. I'm stumbling. But uh, it'll be this morning we're going to do it at 11.15. So we'll be done with our service just before 11. And then at 11.15 on the app, if you're watching there, or even on our Facebook Live, we're going to have our graduate service, uh, some comments for the students, as well as uh, a slideshow, a presentation of our graduates. So uh, if you're not busy at 1115, it would be a good chance for you to log in again then and watch the service and so you know who to pray for as they take the next step. What a, what a weird season this has been, and uh, we wanted to celebrate them in a real special way. And so Jeff and Mark Dubose, and they don't have the same last name, Jeff Bonin and Mark Dubose have... Uh, prepared this and and along with the rest of the team so it's going to be a a really cool morning Um, uh, next week so again uh, we we are so glad that you are hanging in there Um, and I'm hearing from a lot of you that are continuing studying with us thank you for doing that I know this is less than perfect Uh, we expect all of you to come every week when this finally is over I mean like every week Um, that was funny Um, so here's what we're doing if you're not aware I want to keep reminding you Carpenter's Way is a, is a relatively large church. There's about 1,000 people that come to Carpenter's Way. And so because it's so large, and we average about 500 on Sunday mornings, 450 to 500, but because it's so large, we have broken our church down into our Bible study groups or our small groups. And forever, I have said, those are the most important relationships you can have in our, in our local church family, that what we do here on Sunday mornings is teaching and edifying, and, but, but we want to break you down to pray for each other and to do ministry. They're like little churches. And so during this pandemic season, as churches are beginning to open, uh, they're all trying to find ways to keep social distancing as well as as have in-person fellowship. And as the elders have prayed, and we met again this week to evaluate where we are, we're going to continue for the foreseeable future to invite Bible studies in each week. And uh, and that allows them to see each other. That allows you all to pray for each other, to keep in contact. Uh, Many of them will be meeting immediately after the service, and we have... Uh, rooms that's, that are under the social distance guidelines that'll be safe for y'all. And uh, our goal is to get every Bible study group through once a month. So, so you can be back in here. I have no idea how long this is going to last. As I have said the last few weeks, when we start going back to movie theaters and, and uh, they're full and when school is everybody there, there's no reason for us not to meet at that point. But we want to we wanna feed you. We want to accomplish our task in, in the scriptures. We want to give you a chance to fellowship with each other, and we're doing that mostly through Bible study and our online service. But I do want to say, you, uh, you should not feel guilt uh, if you are uh, somehow compromised, whether by age or an illness. Please don't come. You can watch online. I've actually, as I've been telling you, I've had quite a few people say for the first time they can pause and review because I talk too fast or too loud or, or, or whatever. And, uh, or you can, you can switch over to Charles Stanley which hurts my feelings, but uh, I think that's under the biblical pastor affair uh, line item, but, but uh, I understand. Anyway, so this w- next week, uh, our classes are going to be the Rowans, 
Connie Rhodes and Linda Havard's class. The Seekers will be in, and the Seekers is also the Haley's, Douglas, uh, Havard's, and Rex Gray class, and then Stephen Lewis's class. So next week, we're going to have you all in the Worship Center, and uh, uh, we, we thank you for understanding. We're doing the best we can, and we're loving on you. And if you have any needs, please let us know. You can contact us at the church. You can email us. You can even message on Facebook Live, and we're here for you. If you don't have a Bible study, if you'll let me know, I'll plug you into one. We've, we've done that about a dozen times. And uh, we want you to have these relationships when this is all over as well and ongoing every week. So that's why we want to plug you into a Bible study. Even if after this is over, you decide that Bible study is not for you, we want you connected to a group while this thing lasts because it could go on a couple more months. So that's enough with the advertisements. Thanks for watching. Thank you for being here. Y'all look so good uh, out there. It's, it's just wonderful. I expect you to laugh twice as loud at my jokes and uh, sing twice as loud for Chad's worship. Uh, I do want to say something uh, on a serious note. Let's all take a breath because our world is upside down and crazy. Um, so I want to talk about that for a second. The answer, as, as we talked about last week, justice will be served. There is racism. I don't know why that cop killed that guy, but, but it was evil. Um, unless there is an unbelievable explanation at some point, it's, it's wrong. There is racism. There is, whether you want to believe it or not, there is advantages you have to being a middle-class white person. I know some of you are going to want, want to write me on this. It won't change my mind. If I'd have been the one put against the wall in Minneapolis, the treatment of me would have been very, very different than it was for that, that African-American gentleman. Having said that, most police are good. Uh, having said that, many of the people picketing are picketing for the right thing. Having said that, there are people who want to, who want to cause chaos. Actually, Satan wants chaos. Scripture says that Satan is the author of chaos. And all of those things that I just said can be mutually happening at the exact same time. That's why the body of Christ is still here. Because in the midst of trying to solve these things legally, the world, which will never accomplish it, because as you know from history, leaders always, who are not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, corrupt themselves with power, take advantage of it. That's just the nature of the flesh. The answer to that is Jesus Christ. It really, really is. If you today are discouraged and tired, like my heart is sad, there's like a cloud, for every reason I just mentioned. Um, if, and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Um, the truth is the only thing that we can offer that's a permanent solution is Jesus Christ, the judge. Jesus Christ, the just one. Jesus Christ, the redeemer of men of every socioeconomic status, of women of every racial group, no matter what religion you grew up in, no matter what your so sexual orientation is, no matter what sin you've committed or how much time you've spent in jail or what your addictions are, Jesus Christ is the freer of that. He is the hope for the enslaved. He is the hope for, uh, for all mankind. At some point, we are all disappointed by our station in life. Having said that, our answer is Jesus Christ. The answer to the world is Jesus Christ. But be careful that you don't allow that answer to be overshadowed by your political agenda or your social agenda or your thoughts. We should surrender our thoughts to Jesus Christ. 
We should tell people that there is hope no matter what they feel, whether you think it's valid or not, what they think, that the answer is Jesus. There are many angry people. They should be heard. And then we should tell them about Jesus. Because the only just one is Jesus Christ. Um, And as we learned last week in our text, and if you didn't listen to it, you need to go back and listen to it. Justice will be served. God willing, not soon. Because when justice is served, there's no more ability for people to accept Jesus Christ into their heart. And nothing has changed in our task. No matter how uncomfortable, no matter how unjust, no matter what the racial relationship you have with the governing authorities is in this country, no matter what you think of the people you run into or you're watching on TV, the answer to all mankind is a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Right? That's the only permanent solution, right? You got an opportunity to vote later this year, so vote. Vote wisely. But church, please shut up. Please, please. Talk about Jesus right now. Listen to people who are hurting. Just listen. Be slow to speak, Scripture says. Slow to sleep, speak and quick to hear. Listen. Hear people out, even if your blood is boiling because you think they're wrong, and offer them Jesus because he is the answer. We have many police officers in our church, state troopers. We're praying for you. Thank you for serving the Lord in this. We realize you did not cause this. This is your task, though. Serve him and us well. Thank you for already what you're doing. We commit to pray for you, right? If you are African-American, we get it. It's not okay. We're sorry. And we will do our best to never let it happen again. But at the end of the day... Jesus is the just one. Run to him and find peace. Okay, let's pray for our country and our world, okay? And then let's do with that old hymn, and I think we're going to sing it later. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim, right? It's true. So we're going to do that, but we're going to start by asking God to bring healing to our world. The pandemic is worldwide. Um, Keep playing, because you always stop after you start to tell me to be quiet. I know how this goes. But no, you're not. You're telling me to be quiet. But I, I want to say one more thing. We met, we met as elders this week. I, I'm teasing with chat. We met as elders this week, and, and, and this pandemic, no matter what you think of it, is worldwide. And our missionaries are struggling. And your giving has been so faithful this year that, that our mission investment team is beginning to gather to see how we can help our missionaries that we support with extra support to provide food and the people they're serving with. Thank you for giving. We could not do that without that. I I mean, seriously, you are going to start supporting brothers and sisters internationally where you're going to continue to, but in a much bigger way uh, than, than, than we have. So thank you for giving. Keep giving. Keep praying. Pray for us. Pray for me. We don't have this all figured out, but we know who does. So we're trusting him. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, Father God, sitting on the throne, Holy Spirit that resides within us, Father Give us guidance and direction. Give us hearts of empathy and passion. Help us to know what to to say to our police brothers and sisters, our friends. Help us know what to uh, say to our black friends. Help us know what to say to our, uh, our Hispanic friends. May our message not be a political one. May it be a godly one. I believe it is through the church that you are going to bring healing to this country and this world. I believe it's through our brothers and sisters that we support and those that are missionaries across the globe in all different kinds of organizations that you are going to bring 
the message of peace through Jesus Christ to the globe. Father, may we bring it to East Texas. May we not be an angry flock, but a flock of hope. May we be people who understand that we have been called for such a time as this. Father God, we pray that you would remove this pandemic, and if you choose not to, may we be people of hope in the midst of the sickness. We pray that you would remove racism from our land and our world, but if you choose not to, may we be people found not prejudiced. Or even if we struggle with that, may we overcome our prejudice with love that comes from the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit as we live it out among those that we struggle to get to know. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I pray we as a leadership team would be constantly looking at what we're doing to make sure that people know that they're loved by God. We do love you, Lord, and we love people, and we're shocked at what we see. But Lord, may our hearts be drawn back to you as quickly as possible. Father God, be with us wherever we are stationed, whatever our task may be. May we be people whose words are seasoned with hope and grace from the throne room of God. And now as we turn our eyes on Jesus, may the things of the world in the next hour and a half become strangely dim as we look at your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Just a reminder, if you guys want to stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome. If you're there at home, uh, please join in and sing with us.
stories of what they think you're like, but I heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. for answers far and wide but I know that we're all searching for answers only you provide cause you know just what we need before we say a word you're a good good father it's who you are it's who you are
But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. We remember what you did. We remember what's been done by the God who was and is, by the God who's yet to come. We remember how you say. We recall the lost were found. You were present yesterday. You are moving even now. And we will not forget, Lord, you are faithful. You're not finished yet. There's more to come, and we'll keep pressing on, and this will be our song, and we will not forget through the valley we have walked, up the mountains we have climbed. Over giants we have won All with Jesus by our side So whatever comes our way Give us courage to believe That what you started yesterday
full. You're not finished yet. There's more to come. And we'll keep pressing on. And this will be our song. And we will not forget. No, we will not forget, Lord. You are faithful. And you're not finished yet. There's more to come, and we'll keep pressing on, and this will be our song, and we will not forget. Oh, by the power of your blood, by the story of your love, we will overcome. story of your love we will overcome
know, we have been <clears throat> told these things our whole lives. Those of us who grew up in the church, I got saved, gosh, about a week after I was born. <laughs> I was being taken to church. I, don't, I, I was sharing with some guys a few weeks ago of my testimony, and I, I, I remember I always g- grab onto a time when my dad and I got on my knees next to the couch and prayed, but the truth is I had prayed not to go to hell 200 times before that, every time I went to church. And, um, you know, we, that's the story for most of us. We talk about believing in God. Gosh, even if you don't go to church and during this pandemic you've begun watching online, um, this is a very religious community. That song we just sang, I just really believe that 90% of you know that song. I mean, you could sing it without words. Now you get to, to, to find out if you believe it. I mean, this, this, is, exactly, this is exactly where we are. We've been told it was going to happen. We, we shouldn't be surprised. We might be nervous, uh, frustrated, even angry, but we shouldn't be surprised. And so now we get to put in practice things that we didn't have to put in practice before. Turning your eyes upon Jesus. I remember I was thinking as we were singing that, uh, I used to love roller coasters. I still love roller coasters. But it's a funny thing. When I get on a roller coaster, like, I, you know, uh, we used to have season passes to Cedar Point up in Ohio when we lived up there. And uh, they, they, they had tons. It's, it's like the best roller coaster park in the country. Um, please feel free to text me on that if you'd like to debate that. It's jeff at cwbc.org. But they would strap you in with a belt, then they would put a thing across your knees, and then they would lower this thing that came over your chest. And despite the fact that you had all of that, they had these handlebars you could hold on to. And when Mark would ride these roller coasters, he would literally push against the handlebars to push himself in the seat so he wouldn't fall out. Because I didn't trust the seatbelt fully, I didn't trust the lap belt, I didn't trust the things that held my knees in, and I didn't trust these things. Um, I actually believed that I was holding myself in. And I do believe that God is working in the church right now to teach us that we can let go of the handlebars. He's got this. And we just sang a song um, that he's not done yet, the second to last song, you know. And how do we know that? Because we're still here. We're still here. There's still work to be done. And we're going to get into that in today's text. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want you to stick with me this morning. This is super important. I, I know I say that every week, but this is super, super important. Two supers, really, really important. We're going to be in John 12 this morning, um, and uh, I think you're going to see it from an angle. Maybe you haven't looked at it before like this. And I do believe it's incredibly relevant to the time in which we live. So let's ask God to turn our eyes to him now. Lord Jesus, help us to focus on you. And I know this is a difficult time to focus because we've got parents at home with kids crawling all over them. I know that even parents here have their kids because there's not children programming going on. There's lots of stuff going on in our world. There are people who are afraid for their spouses that are trying to control the riots. There are folks who are scared. Uh, um, Lord, there's so many distractions. Help us for the next 45 minutes to turn our eyes upon you and look full in your wonderful face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oftentimes, when we open the scriptures uh, or we study the Bibles, a chapter at a time or a story at a time or a verse here and there uh, that seems to fit uh, the moment or the lesson that we want to teach as pastors or uh, we want to teach our families, we hear a story and then we, we look at it and then we move on from it. And um, uh, we, while we, I think most of us at Carpenter's Way, 
most of you who attend it regularly are beginning to see the value of, of context, understanding what happened before an event, because it helps you understand maybe why an event took place. Um, there is also a lot of things that happen after events that we don't talk about. Like, for instance, have you ever wondered what happened to Egypt after the Exodus? After their complete army, Scripture says, is drowned in the sea, what happened to Egypt? Or the question of what happened to Jericho after the walls caved in? I mean, we know that the Jews come and, and take the land, but what happened to the people in Jericho? They obviously weren't all killed. Uh, we know what happens to Rahab. Or do you ever wonder what happened to the Roman centurion guard responsible for the guards overseeing the crucifixion of Christ, who declared at the crucifixion, this really was a son of the gods. Now, I know if you've seen the robe, that the English translation is that really was the son of God, but actually the Aramaic and Greek translation is he is a son of the gods, which fit their religious point of view. This is a supernatural being. Doesn't necessarily mean he bowed the knee to Christ, but he clearly recognized that this man hanging was not only innocent, but had superpowers uh, that are only divine in nature. And we'll be talking about that, obviously, in the coming weeks, because next week we get to the triumphal entry. So we're almost there. For many of the stories in Scripture, the eyewitnesses that write these stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially in the life of Christ, they don't tell us what happens after. Of course, Genesis through the end of the Old Covenant actually has the story, except for 400 years in what we call the intertestamental period, the Old Testament scriptures end with prophets 400 years before Christ is born. And that intertestamental period is a period of time we can actually go back and study history and know what happens. But in many of these stories, we have no idea what happens. Well, today's text is an exception to that fact. Not long before uh, today's events happen in John 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11, before that takes place, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. It was after this undeniable miracle that the high priest decides to stop talking about having Jesus quieted and actually begins to plan to put into action the pursuit of killing him. If you recall, Jesus recognizes that, and he goes into a short-term exile at that point. Why does he do that? Because his time to die has not yet come, and Jesus was in complete control, even though it looked like he wasn't. So Jesus goes into exile for a short period of time, a matter of weeks, and then when the time comes for him to begin to head back to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples start their way back to Jerusalem. And the last two weeks, we've looked at uh, one of the miracles that take place. There's, multiple, there's several miracles that happen. We looked at one of them. The healing of the ten lepers happens in this period. And then one of the lessons that Jesus taught, last week we studied uh, Jesus' teaching on the coming kingdom because the Pharisees are asking, when is the Lord going to return? When's the second coming? And Jesus addresses that because, and I, I talked about that because it was timely again. If you weren't with us in that study, you need to go back and look at it because Jesus' teaching on, on when the Son of Man was coming back is antithetical or the opposite of what is often taught from pulpits in this country. It's really kind of crazy how we've left the Scripture. So I encourage you to go back in the archives and watch next week's uh, last week's message and see what we said there. But we pick up the story in John chapter 12, verse 1 right there. Heading back to Jerusalem, he's healed the ten lepers, he's been teaching, and now he's going to Bethany. Six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. 
So we find Jesus uh, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Matthew and Mark tells us the home belonged to Simon. So we don't know the relationship that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus has with Simon. Maybe Simon was the father of these three, or maybe because he was a, a healed leper, we know that about him, because he was a healed leper, he let these three friends of Jesus actually live in his home. We don't know the relationship of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus with Simon, but it's Simon's house, and they're living in it, and they throw a party there, so they obviously have control of the house. They're not just renting a room. They have some authority over it, and they throw a party in Jesus' honor. This is a week before Passover, not just any Passover, but this is the Passover where Jesus will become the slaughtered lamb for mankind. You remember at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, John the baptizer actually spoke on behalf of God and he pointed to Jesus and he says, that's the lamb of God who's going to remove the sin of the world. Well, every Passover, it's a celebration of how God, the death angel, passed over the sin uh, or, or passed over the Jews and wreaked havoc in the home of the Egyptians. And it was also the time of year that they would plead with God through sacrifices to forgive their sin. So all of this is going on. Jesus is about to become the Passover lamb to take away the sin of the world. And a dinner is served in Jesus' honor. Why was the dinner served? In celebration, the Greek inference in this text is that this is not just a, it's not a solemn event. It's not just an honoring party. It's a celebration. It's put on by Mary and Martha to celebrate their friend who happens to be the Messiah who raised their brother from the dead. This is a celebration of answered prayer. They are very excited that Jesus has answered their prayer. And as you can imagine, they want to celebrate it. Jesus is coming through Bethany, and he wants to celebrate it. The town of Bethany is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's actually, ironically, on the other side of the Mount of Olives in walking distance from Jerusalem. It'll be a short walk after this event for Jesus to go there. And as far as we know, and at least as far as Scripture tells us, this is the final event in Jesus' public ministry. So as you, as you would expect, now that you know Martha, and you know Martha, because she was the one who was preparing a big feast for Jesus when Mary was sitting at his feet and worshiping, and she goes to Jesus and says, do you think it's okay that my sister is sitting here? Martha's the worker bee. And Jesus says only one thing was necessary. You didn't have to do a whole buffet. Actually, Martha is spending time with me. I'm not going to be here very long. She's chosen better, so I'm not going to ask her to help you. Martha was a worker. Mary was the relational one. So as you would expect, Martha in this text is serving her guests. If you take time to read between the lines and listen to what it says, you learn about a lot of these characters, their personality, uh, how they interacted with people, what their gift set was. Martha is serving her guests. What's Lazarus doing? Eating. Doesn't tell us anything else about him, just that he is eating. Their guests are milling around, eating and celebrating their previously dead friend and the rabbi who healed him. And Mary, what's Mary doing? Mary is doing what Mary does. Verse 3, then while Lazarus is eating and Martha is serving and Jesus is there, Mary takes a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance. All right, so let me, let me give more context to this. This, uh, this essence of nard was a very expensive perfume. It, it had to be imported from India. Uh, this much of this product would have been, as it says later in the text, the value of one year's wages. And she pours the whole bottle on his feet. And in, the, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it tells us not just his feet, but his head as well. 
And she pours so much of it out that it gets all over everything. And so it tells us that she took her hair and she dried up the spillage on his feet, around his feet, and on his head, and around his hair. And John tells us, and this is such a fun thing for us to look at, my, my uh, fellow Bible students, but John is making an editorial comment when he says, the whole house was filled with the stink. Have you ever had too much perfume? Too much perfume is too much. And, she, and what he is saying is, as he thinks back on it, and remember, this is eyewitness testimony. John was there. As he thinks back of this event, he wants you to know how much of this super expensive stuff was poured out. The whole house stunk of it. I mean, we always read it, oh, it smell, must have smelled nice. Well, it probably smelled better than dirty feet and B.O., but maybe not because too much perfume is worse than b- dirty feet and B.O. And that's how much she poured out. This was a very impactful event because of the four Gospels, three record it. Now, there are some differences, as I've already pointed out. Matthew and Mark tell us that she poured the ointment over his head. That's part of the anointing. It tells us that it was Simon's house. This tells us that it was poured on his feet. This tells us that she wiped up his feet with her hair and that it's the house of Mary Mary and Martha and Lazarus. None of those are mutually exclusive. The other two, are it's different perspectives of the same story. To Matthew and Mark, they remembered who owned the house. To Matthew and Mark, it was the anointing on his head that stood out. To John, it was his feet. It was the smell of the room. They are, uh, it, one of the things that's so beautiful about the scriptures is that each author, they write in what's in their heart, what they see, what they experience, and boy, are you going to see that. In fact, the very next verse, for those of you who have studied the Gospel of John, you know that John doesn't pull punches. It is so nice to see people out here. Everywhere I look, there's people. That's so good. Uh, um, back to the subject. Uh, John, John makes a lot of weird personal comments because while the gospel of John is God-inspired, the truth is it's man, um, God allows man to tell his own story. So while God is actually ordaining the very words used, he allows John to write. You remember things like this. For instance, John tells us that Peter was a slow runner. You remember that? Or actually he was a slow runner and Peter was a faster runner. Peter got to the tomb first. Uh, He talks about the conflict. He refers, very rarely does he call himself John, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's very personal. Well, in this text, writing it, and we know that he's writing this and recording this after the resurrection, because he's about to tell you things that at the time the disciples didn't know. For instance, verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, you know, the disciples who would soon betray him. He puts that in there so that you will know that the scoundrel caused a problem. The disciple who would soon betray him. The perfume was worth a year's wages, that disciple said. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that Judas cared for the poor. He was actually a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So a couple things. Obviously, John is recording this event for us after the crucifixion. For at that time, he didn't know that Judas was a Judas, actually. The other two Gospels actually tell us that the other disciples jumped in and agreed with Judas. Judas said, you're wasting the wealth that's in that bottle on his feet when we could be giving it to the poor. And the other two Gospels, Matthew and John, seems to like to present himself in a happier light actually says that all of the disciples, including John, were all in agreement. Yeah, 
yeah, we should take this, we should take this nard and we should sell it and we should give it to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. John wants you to know. This is all Judas' fault. He didn't care for the poor. We learned something that no other gospel tells us. In John's recording of it, John tells us that Judas wasn't just a member of the disciples' team. He was a leader. He was their accountant. Never trust an accountant. That's just kidding. My daughter's that. So that, I, I'm, I'm teasing. But, but the fact is that John gives us more information. I mean, I, I want to stop here, and I want you to take a breath because there's an important lesson in here. I want you to notice that Judas, although being a disciple of Jesus, walking with him for over three years, an actual leader among the disciples, the budget guy, the bookkeeper in the group, was still a thief. And John wants us to know that he really didn't care for the poor at all, but he's frustrated that such an expensive thing, a year's worth of value of wealth, he can't get any of his fingers on. Just a warning here, an observation. Just because somebody's a member of our church, just because somebody claims to be an evangelical, just because somebody claims to be on our team, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a member of a church in good standing, a friend, a relative who has verses from the Bible on the walls of their house or office, doesn't mean that they are a true follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a turncoat and an unbeliever on his elder board. This is a message for a pastor team or a conference, but this is also a message for us because there are many for whom parts of Jesus' teachings, pieces of it, fit their selfish agenda, whether it's on the right or on the left. They use pieces of Jesus' teaching as a taken-out-of-context verse here and there to propagate their selfish ideals or desires or prejudices on, again, both the right and the left. You know that because it was, it was in your lifetime and my lifetime that we use Scripture to propagate prejudice against people of color. Well, you can't marry a white person and a person of color, whether it's Asian or brown or black, because, well, that's not acceptable. That's truly, that's absolutely not biblically accurate. I remember uh, growing up and being taught Jew, uh, verses from the law given to the Jews that says you, the Jews were just supposed to marry Jews and therefore we should just marry white people. That's a lie. What it meant was you could marry somebody who was a Samaritan, but they had to be alienated in, and that was under a totally different commandment. It had nothing to do with color or race. The Scripture still instructs us not to marry outside of the body of Christ. It's the same exhortation. He didn't want them intermarrying into a different religion that would cause confusion or problems. But the Scriptures have been used to if to affect a person's selfish agenda. Many of us grew up, and some of you are going to have a problem with me saying this again, but many of us grew up being taught a lie. Drinking's a sin. Well, that really creates a problem when you read the New Testament, and Jesus isn't only telling them to drink. He's providing the drink. What it instructs us against is the abuse of alcohol or anything that controls us. God isn't against sex. He created sex within the way he created it. But too often in the church, we teach the church that, God, that sex is bad or dirty or evil or it's just for procreation, believe it or not, people teach. That's not true. That's a lie. It takes Scripture out of context. And we could go on and on and on uh, to, to, make our, to, to make the point that, that we have a tendency 
to, to take the Scriptures and use it the way they want. But I want one more warning for you, and that's to let you know that many people in positions like this misuse the script, Scriptures to get you to agree with them so that you will support them. Just because somebody's a pastor, just because somebody's a member of a church, just because somebody claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they are. There are many for whom parts of Jesus' teaching fits their selfish agenda, and they have no problem using it. If Jesus had a turncoat on his leadership team, we're going to have him in the body, in the family. Jesus actually said that we have to be careful because some come over the wall without coming through the gate, that among us there will be thieves and liars. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep. Now you've got to pause there. We stick with harmless, but I, got you, I want you to understand, they're going to present themselves as sheep, part of the family. But they are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Now, I, I want you to breathe for a second. I want to pause. I'm going to come back to this text so you can leave it up there, Louise. But we live in a time today where we listen to what people say about themselves, not what they do. That's a mistake. Scripture never tells you to follow people's words, except Jesus is in the Scriptures. Scripture actually says, Jesus actually says, that you should identify them by the way that they act, not the words that they say. Can you pick up grapes from thorn bushes or figs or from thistles? Verse 17. A good tree produces good fruit. Produces doesn't manufacture, it naturally comes out, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. You certainly understand the illustration there, right? Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And this is in the context of him saying that among you, you're going to have people that claim to be good sheep or, or leaders of the sheep, but are actually wolves. Jesus is telling us to be fruit inspectors. The problem we have with that is Satan has so effectively attacked the church that we're afraid of judging each other. We call it judging. Let's not judge. Well, Jesus just told us to. And it wasn't just Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus who are being influenced by people who claim to be followers of Jesus. They were actually John, many of them were John's disciples, and they no longer were preaching salvation through faith in Christ alone. They're preaching salvation through faith in Christ plus keeping the Jewish commandments, legalism. And Paul wrote to them, and he said this in Galatians chapter 5, I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives as opposed to the law. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of Moses' law. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. This is what it looks like. Sexual immorality impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Paul says, let me tell you again as I have before. Anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to add in the context to this, no matter what they claim. But the Holy Spirit produces. You don't produce it. You, you, don't, you don't decide to do it. Paul just told us that your intentions may be good, but you can't do it without the Holy Spirit's power. It is the Holy Spirit, as you surrender to Him, that produces this kind of fruit. Not your pastor, not self-motivation, not, not psychology, not medication for anxiety, but this kind of fruit is Holy Spirit produced. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. So, so let me put this in a nutshell because I, I want you to really understand. While you and I grew up in churches that told us if you walk an aisle and pray a prayer, you get saved, and I agree with that. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I totally agree with that. It is only the person that has the Holy Spirit that gets eternal life. Romans says that the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person is not whether you're a disciple of Jesus and a, and a money changer in it, whether or not you're a member of a Baptist church or an Assemblies of God church, not whether, whether or not you're a conservative, whether or not you help the poor, whether or not you pray, the difference is whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you. And it says in Romans that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a child of God. And I know that's upsetting because we want to depend on our own actions to save us. But you can't save you. Only God can. That's why Jesus spread his blood to remove our sin. That's why the Holy Spirit comes in, to transform us from the inside out. And yet we've been taught most of our life that we need to work harder. We need to be better Christians. We need to be better. That's not how Christians act. And the answer should be, that's exactly how Christians without the Holy Spirit act. One of the things that's been somewhat alarming to me as we've gone through the stories of Jesus is how clear he is on this issue. While we say to each other, don't judge, that's what Satan wants us to do. The fact is, we should absolutely judge each other. In fact, if you want clear teaching on that, look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Look at this. Look at your screen. Look at the screen in front of you. Paul is talking. Paul is talking. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, those that are unsaved. But it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. What? That may not be 2020 Christianity, but it's New Testament Christianity. Why? Because there's a lot of people who may think that they're following God when in fact they're following Christianity. And if you follow Christianity, you just get free coffee on Sundays. You don't get eternal life. That's the problem. The problem with Judas was he lived out a follower of Jesus' life without truly giving his life to him. That was the problem with Judas. That Judas had preconceived ideas that, he, that Jesus taught on, that he liked, and he followed Jesus and followed Jesus and followed Jesus until he'd had enough. I've had enough with this guy. I don't know what the Bible says about Jesus. I just know that I believe. Who cares what you believe? You are not the truth giver. Judas didn't get to decide what, what, he, what she should do with this nard. But he thought he did. Why? 
because he wasn't surrendered to Jesus as he was. He was surrendered to Jesus as he wanted him to be. More on that to come. But that scares me. Because all the disciples followed him. Amen, Judas. Jesus. Look, I'm, I may not be as harsh as Judas, Jesus, but we only have so much money, and we could have taken this. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And for those of you, okay, this is really going to hurt some of your feelings, but who, for those of you who use this verse to say that we shouldn't help the poor, you are so deeply flawed. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about the, her heart. This is a woman who has very little. You remember that Mary was mad at Jesus, so when he comes into town of Bethany to raise Lazarus, she's the, she's the sister that won't even address him. Do you remember that? She stayed home. Martha runs to Jesus because she's the doer, and she says, oh, if you would have been here, you could have saved him, but I, I get it, Jesus. You, you, you are the resurrection. You're going to raise him, but we're hurting so much, and what does Mary do? Mary stays at home, and it is only when Martha runs back and says, Mary, Jesus is asking for you, which scripture doesn't tell us he was, so Martha, I think, is manipulating the story to get Mary to come, and as soon as Jesus asks, now Mary's pride is released, and she could run to him. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, I love you so much. How did you let him die? Man, at you. You could almost feel her run to Jesus and grab his cloak and go, how could you let him die? But I love you. He loved you. Lazarus loves you. But how could you let him die? I watched you heal lepers. This is Mary. Mary's overwhelmed with joy. Her prayers had been answered. Her brother was alive, which is all she seemed to care about this time. My brother's alive, and he healed him. I never in a million dreams, a million years, a billion of my dreams, I never ever imagined that he could raise the dead. Oh my, oh my Lord, you are my Lord. And she's overwhelmed. And what does she do? She takes the brand new Cadillac she just bought and gave it to Jesus. Why? Because that was the expression of her heart. And what are the disciples doing? What every religious leader does. Oh, we could use that money in a way better way. God doesn't care or need our money. He wants our heart. So when you see somebody in need, if your heart is right, you, you give. If you see Jesus, you give to him. And God is way more interested than the outpouring of our heart than the control of our mind. The control of our mind from the scriptures keep us balanced and, and in check, but there is a relationship that grows and moves. And there's a lot that's gone on with Martha and Mary and Martha's throwing Jesus a party, and Mary is worshiping at his feet, and the disciples want to stop her. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be here for very much longer. And I don't even think Mary had any idea what she was doing as she's pouring the ointment on his feet or the perfume, because Jesus actually says something prophetic. She's preparing me for burial. <laughs> I love it. That was another one of those things the disciples said. What did he just say? Burial. Who's dying? Whatever. It's another, it's another Jesusism. What the heck is he talking about? I really want to, although we could spend two or three weeks in this text alone and people love to do it, I think you pretty much understand the conflict here. Mary gave all she had to Jesus in worship. The most expensive thing she could find. If she had a brand new cow, she'd have given it to him. That was just the most precious thing she had and she was expressing her heart. And Jesus accepted it because it was the condition of her heart that counted, not her rhetoric. 
And what did Judas want? Some of the action. Check your heart. Check your heart. If in your ministry, in your life, you want some of the action, your heart's not right. Jesus gets all the action or he's not Lord. Check your fruit. Some of you heard me read about the fruit a minute ago, and you're like, well, are you saying I'm not saved? If you live like that, I am. It actually says in that text that we're never free from the conflict of the flesh, but if, if your life is exemplified in making excuses for sinful behavior in your life, I'm saved, but I'm not perfect. If your t-shirt, your favorite t-shirt says, not perfect, just forgiven, you should check your fruit. It's time for the church to stop seeing how sinful we can be and still be God's children and say, I'm just going to be a follower of Jesus. That's what he wants from us. We won't be perfect, but that's not an excuse. It's a reality, and grace is a reality. But if the last two weeks of your life look like sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, causing division, dissension, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like those, selfish sins. Paul says that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, no matter what they say in between their sin rants. That's what Scripture says. Check your heart. Check your fruit. Check the fruit of others who claim to be in the faith before you follow or endorse. Because in retrospect, John wishes he had not followed Judas. This story, obviously, as he's recording it, brings up anger issues and frustration. Why? Because he was one of those agreeing with Judas in this story. Verse 9. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead. <laughs> I'm so excited to preach this. Okay, I've got about, I've got about 10 more minutes because I promised Jeff we'd be done by noon because at 11.15, in case you haven't heard, we're doing our graduation service. It's online and stuff, so watch it. Free advertisement, Jeff. I want to talk about Lazarus for a second. I know that we have in the past, but I want you to think about the circumstances he's living in for this moment. While Martha is putting out a spread celebrating her brother's resurrection and really honoring the man who raised him, while Mary is taking the most expensive thing she owns and just giving it to him, thanking him, praising him. And what both of these women are really doing is thanking God for answered prayer because their life is better. Lazarus, we're told, is just sitting there eating. He's just eating. It doesn't tell us that he's cutting up. It doesn't say that he's explaining what death is like, and as far as we know, he's not. He's not even celebrating Jesus' act of healing like his sisters are. To the best of our knowledge, he's just in the corner eating. And while I can't prove this, I think, and Annie and I talked about this a little bit this week, but I think Jesus, I think Lazarus is kind of bummed. I can't prove this, but I think he's going, well, I was already dead. I was already through that door of sickness nobody really wants to walk to. 
and they brought me back. You brought me back. I was just about to sit down for dinner in paradise, and now I have to do this whole thing again. Because sometimes God's call on your life stinks. Now, for you who are critical, and that's good, saying you can't prove that, I think you're making this up, let me tell you what I know he would be thinking soon. Look at how John ends this narrative in verse 10 and 11. Then the leading priest, so remember, okay, so they're having a party. Martha's serving. Jesus and Lazarus are eating. You've got Mary anointing his feet with oil. You've got the disciples rebuking. <laughs> this is stupid. The disciples are rebuking Jesus for letting her pour oil on him. In the meantime, you have, uh, 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 you have Lazarus is over there in the corner. And then all of a sudden, people have heard that Jesus and Lazarus are together again. And so they come in droves to see him. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, verse 10. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and were believing in Jesus. So while everybody is celebrating the answered prayer that he's alive, celebrating that Jesus had raised him and how wonderful he is at answering their prayers. Both Jesus and Lazarus are in the room going, we're toast. Jesus knows that he's a week out or two weeks out from being arrested and killed. And Lazarus is now hearing rumors that the Pharisees want to kill him. And they're probably whispering, you may have come back to life, but you're not staying alive very long. And in case you're wondering what happens from this point on, we have no knowledge that he lives past two weeks. It is very reasonable, I can't prove it, it is reasonable to believe that after they crucified Jesus, the temple guards send somebody like a Judas over to kill him. It is reasonable to believe that his life is ended two weeks later. I can't prove it. I don't even know if it happened. In fact, I was doing some study this week on what people teach about Lazarus after this, and there are some Orthodox churches in Africa who teach that Lazarus, after this meal, ran for his life and lived out his life in Africa. That sounds like fun. I mean, the fact is, he ran for his life. Why? Because he was dead and now he's alive. And what's he doing on behalf of God? And what is his task? Well, I want to remind you of Ephesians 2.10 that we always put in cards and tell each other how beautiful we are. Look at the verse. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us long ago. So let me read that again with Lazarus in mind. Lazarus was God's masterpiece. He was already dead in human terms. The, 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 uh, the, the, the pandemic had killed him. He was already in the grave for four days. But God raised him. So now the raised Lazarus is God's masterpiece. He created him anew through the power of Christ Jesus so that now he could do good things that God had planned for him to do long before this time. And you know what those plans were? To eat and then to die. Lazarus was God's masterpiece. Saved, allowed to die, created now alive again for God to use to do some good work, whether it was two weeks long or 20 years long. The fact is, the rest of his life stunk. Why? Because he was God's masterpiece. That's why. This whole story, as Jesus told the disciples, was all about the glory of God. 
to express the power of God, that he was God and he had power over death, remember? And the only way to prove that is to use a human that would die and then come back from the dead and then actually prove that he was alive and not just a spirit by eating. That's exactly what Lazarus' task was. And the result of that is the leading priests decide to kill Lazarus for it was because of him that many of the people were deserting them and following Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus because he became a living testimony to the power of Jesus. Lazarus was not actually raised to make Mary and Martha happy. Despite that was their prayer. Lazarus was not raised so that Lazarus could live longer. It's possible he didn't even survive the month. Lazarus' life was not better because he came back from the dead. In fact, I could make the case that it was worse. He'd already crossed over. He'd already experienced paradise. He was in the land of eternal life, hope, and joy. He had entered his rest. And then he's called back simply to breathe for a short time more as a living testimony to God's work and then be killed again. So why did Jesus bring him back to life? Because there was work for him to do. Why would God put this man that was his good friend back in harm's way? Because it's God's workmanship. God had work for him to do that might hurt him temporarily, but will raise up God's plan and do amazing things for the kingdom work forever. There would be personal short-term pain, but great eternal gain. Now I'm going to get personal. We're almost done. Here is the high probability that some of you are going to take exception to what I'm about to say, but it's true nonetheless. So you need to put on your big boy pants for a moment. There are a lot of people complaining right now about our rights being trampled on. I get it. In their context, in their culture, their country, many in the Christian family are saying that this pandemic and what the government is doing is overreach. How dare you ask me to wear a mask? I refuse to quarantine. I don't like how church is doing church right now. I want the church back the way I've always had the church. You can't have church online. I think this is all fake anyway. What if, just for a second, what if actually what you believe is true, but God raised you up for this time? Let, let me assume for a second that the government is overreaching with max, uh, masks. And by the way, I just this is a personal thing, and, and, and this is going to upset some of you. But all of those of you who have been saying that the government asking us to wear masks and, and not meet in mask groups and being careful, for those of you who have been upset about that, you should be twice as upset about what really was government overreach this week when one of its servants killed a black man. That's government overreach. But that's a different message. The fact is, what if it is? What if our government is going socialistic? What if our country is falling apart? What if beef is going to be more expensive than it's ever been? What if we have to go back to raising our food? What if you're only supposed to live two more weeks and then you'll be killed? What if that's God's plan? Or did God just pick a couple people to do that to, like Lazarus? What have we done as pastors to give you the idea that this life was about you? I'm sorry, it's not. It's not about you at all. Actually, when you got saved, what you said was, if, if you confess your sin and you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and you make him Lord of your life, you give control to him, you'll be saved. That's Romans 10, 9, 10, and 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do those things, you've given up your life. 
Jesus said, if you give up your life, you can follow me. But if you keep your life for yourself, you won't find eternal life. Right, Judas? What if, what if you've only bought into half of the story? What if there really isn't separation between being saved and being a true committed follower of Jesus? Is it possible to be saved and not follow Jesus? I know some of you are thinking, well, are you telling me that I can't be political and a child of God? You can't be angry. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit no matter what you're doing. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. And it is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness. The fruit of the flesh is division. In, in case you're not clear, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's not your grandma's rumor. The end of Revelation has all this being thrown into the lake of fire. It, it is. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, it is. That's why we're still here to tell it it doesn't have to go with the basket. We're here to tell people we don't even like, like Paul did to Gentiles, that our Father loves them. Whether you understand His love for them or not. That's the fruit of the Spirit's presence. And our job here is not to save this country. I'm thankful for America. I, I am, the only thing I'm afraid of this morning is 52 of you writing text messages to Jeff Bonin about my message. And I'm not really afraid of that because I'm not selling this out. This is the truth. This is the truth, friends. This is the truth. What if this next verse, Louise, will you put Romans 12 up there for me, please? Just read it. What if Paul wasn't being cued and this wasn't a t-shirt verse and it wasn't just a verse you memorized in Awana? What if he actually meant this? What if, because of all God has done for us, we actually give our bodies, our rights, our life to be a living sacrifice, the kind he'll accept? What if worship wasn't we, what we do when the piano's playing or when we're talking about Jesus. But what if worship is what we do when we're not talking about Jesus and singing about Jesus? What if it's how we live? What if it's what we do when we lose our job? How we react? What if right now in this country, what it needed, more than a new dialogue on prejudice was a new dialogue on justice found in grace and God? Yes, we can do all those things at the same time. But if all we do is outlaw prejudice, it's already outlawed. The only thing that will bring an end to that is Jesus. The only thing that will bring an end to, go, to government overreach is heaven. <laughs> and then you're in a monarchy, a theocracy. <laughs> you have no say. Man, family, what if our task right now is the same as Lazarus? What if we're here only to live two more weeks and then we go home because we're killed. Will it be a, wife, a life well lived? So we're going to take communion together. If you haven't got elements, go get them. You can use bread and seven up if you need to.
If you're in this room, you're going to have a little bit of a difficult time. <laughs> Your little communion sack, snack packs are weird. There's a little piece of plastic over the top, and then there's a wafer, and then underneath is bad-tasting Welch's. Listen, I want to do this different this morning. We know, you know, that the bread is a symbol of Christ saying, I did this for you. It's a part of the Last Supper in the upper room, and we'll get into this in coming weeks. But, but you're aware that he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this body is, is broken for you. Take and eat all of it. And then, traditionally, we take the, the juice, and, and it, some churches use wine. We use juice because we have people, okay, it's cheaper. And we have people who struggle with alcohol, and we don't even want to spin that out of control. So it's just juice, and it looks like blood, and it reminds us that it's the shedding of Jesus' blood that forgives us from sin, right? We all know that, right? So this week, I want to do it different. In light of what we just studied, let's start at agreeing that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, okay? I want you to take it right now. If you are a child of God, if you are in fellowship with God, I'm going to be quiet for 15 seconds. If you are not where you need to be, would you surrender your life to the Lord? There's only one reason for every one of us this morning not to be right with God, and that's pride. Just thank Him for grace. I'm going to be quiet. Talk to your Heavenly Father, even if you haven't in a year. Thank you for 1 John 1, 9 that says, If we have confessed our sin, you have been faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you you did that through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we drink the juice to remember that our sin is only forgiven, not by legalism, but by the blood of Christ. So drink it. Now take the cracker or bread. And this time, this isn't the body of Christ. This is you. Only take the bread. If you're willing to say, because you shed your blood for me, because my sin is forgiven, because I want to follow you off of your cliff, because I realize that my task is the same as Lazarus, to sit there and eat until you tell me to get up and talk. If you're willing to walk off this cliff with Jesus, take this. If you're not, just set it back down on the table in front of you. If you're willing to follow Jesus and have your body broken for him, to be a living sacrifice as Jesus was for you, take the bread as your commitment that I'm willing to live the Lazarus life. Father God, I am very passionate this morning because of what you have been teaching me. Because I don't measure up to the things that I preach. And I am deeply convicted. Father God, I want to follow you off a cliff. Even if I don't I don't understand why. I want to trust you. I don't want to be angry. I want to be hopeful. And I know the people, many, many are with me in that. So, Father, we give our lives to you again today. And we say, do with us as you see fit. If you ask us to live the Lazarus life, 
may we be faithful for this, with the short time we have left, even if we wish it were different. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 15 minutes, we're going to start our retirement from second wind service, so you can tune back into this. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you so much for watching.